Put your finger in the book of Exodus, if you would. Exodus chapter 18. And we're in an interesting place in this story. We're in the, the desert series, and the desert is this interesting thing. It's this, uh, it's this huge story in the Old Testament, but it's also this metaphor for what it, what it means to, to live a Christian life, what the Christian life really is. And so what you find out is the desert is between Egypt, which represents slavery, and the promised land, which really represents the ultimate and kind of final goal when everything is good or how, how it should be. And in between that is this wandering period or this desert. And strangely enough, I think we naturally assume that there are desert times or desert seasons in our life as believers, but it's always something that we want to control or make small or kind of argue away. But as scripture would have it, all of our life is the desert. Um, The book of Hebrews talks about when we go to be with Christ, that he is our Sabbath rest, that he is in some sense the promised land, that that when we go there, it will be as it ought to be. And in in the meantime, we're kind of sojourners or aliens kind of uh, in this world, groaning and suffering along with the rest of creation as we await for that glory. So we're in this desert. So the way scripture has it is that from the time you become a Christian, You're not saved out of your problems. You're saved from sin, the slavery that's there, and freed up to exist in the in-between state, which is the desert, where circumstances are challenging, but where you're with your God, and your God is with you. So we have a real problem, I think, in the American church by trying to assume, like the Israelites did, that we have a, a set of problems and that salvation simply means that we're, we're freed up out of these problems and therefore free of problems. Does that make sense? In, in America, we use God in a very utilitarian way, meaning we have an equation. I have a set of problems which leads to suffering, which I don't like, and I'm gonna insert God into this equation. God will save me from the problems so that I won't have problems anymore. And when I end up having problems or, or problems persist in my life, then I look at, at what I inserted into the equation and, and I think that somehow it's broken. This thing's not working the way it was supposed to work. Because salvation for us is, is a concept that we've completely simplified, oversimplified, and therefore gotten wrong. When, when I accept Christ... Certainly it frees me out of uh, the rock bottom place I was and the problems that were in my life by, by choosing my own way, that, it, that I'm set free from sin to be able to go God's way. But never does it say in scripture that by going God's way and having God with me and me being with God, that somehow circumstantially everything's going to be the, uh, as it ought to be, as it was designed to be in the end. So you see, we have these desert lives. All of us have these desert lives. And a problem with our theology leads to theological problems. Let me say that again. A problem with theology leads to theological problems. 
So everywhere I go today in the church, everywhere I go, people are really struggling with faith. And they're leaving the church or they're, they're beginning to wander from their Christian kind of belief and understanding because they have these tensions in their life, these doubts, these questions, these frustrations, because life is messy. And their Christianity, their false theology, their bad theology told them that God was the fix to that mess. And so in the face of the mess, they're now looking for another answer. And just like the Israelites that created uh, an idol, they didn't, they didn't create the golden calf because they thought God no longer existed. I mean, God had just saved them. They thought that somehow they had gone beyond the boundaries of God's power or beyond his, his willingness to continue to provide for them. In other words, they, they didn't trust him anymore. They didn't start doubting that he existed. They didn't trust him with their, their lives, their challenges and the problems that they were facing. So they looked to something else. They created a golden calf and said, maybe the gods that these Egyptians used to worship will, will do it for us. Maybe this will solve my problems. And so there's a lot of people that I think are in the same boat saying, I don't know that I stopped believing in God, but it's not really working. And so let me go try something else that might work and alleviate the problems because I don't feel like life should be this messy. And so a problem with theology, thinking that, that salvation or just being saved is somehow going to free you of all of the messiness of life, that problem in your theology leads to theological problems, weird questions and doubts that persist. Does that make sense? And, and I think one of the things that comes in with that is this strange notion that faith and doubt Actually, it's not strange. I think it's rather logical, but it's, but it's wrong. It's false. It seems true, but it's not. That faith and doubt are on opposite ends of, of a teeter-totter. That they're on opposite ends of a spectrum. That as you have more faith, doubt goes down. If you have more doubt, that means you don't have faith. That there's an either-or happening. Does that make sense? And that's a real, it's a real challenge because we're all closet doubters. And if you don't think you are, wait till you wake up tomorrow and, and find out that you've got a new set of problems. And then it's going to creep up on you and you're going to realize that you really do struggle with persistent doubts. And here's the kicker, right? Faith is the thing that operates in spite of doubt. Faith is the thing that operates because of doubt. Because I struggle to believe, because I'm not certain, therefore faith has something to, to get traction with because I'm going to choose to believe God even though I'm afraid. There's something of value now to faith. Does that make sense? If everything is apparent, if it's all logical, if I can see it, if, it, if it's just there in front of me, it's walking by sight. It's not walking by faith. You see, faith needs doubt like a fire needs oxygen. If I don't doubt, then there's really no meaning to this idea of trusting with my eyes closed because I believe that God is big enough, despite all of the evidence that says I'm going to fail for sure. Does that make sense? And so we walk into this desert, 
And we're challenged with the reality that even though we've been saved and even though God is in our midst, we are going to continually face problems that are going to shake us. And that in the face of those problems, we have to continue to reach for a God and say that somehow your way, somehow your strength, somehow your ability, somehow your concern for us is going to be sufficient to provide. We don't have to go back to Egypt we don't have to look for some other uh, solution. We don't have to go worship some other God. We don't have to leave our religion. That somehow, God, you're going to provide. And we hold and we hold and we hold. And some of us might even give our life while we're holding to that faith. Believing that we will reach the promised land where everything will be as it ought to be. That's faith. That's faith. That's the Christian life. So when we get to the book of Exodus, we see that, that this metaphor of what the spiritual life with God, uh, what, what that really looks like, we see the euphoria of a worship song, that, that first kind of burst of I've been liberated, I've been rescued, I've been delivered, I'm, I'm saved. And if you became a Christian late in life, you know that kind of joy where everything seems um, bright, the birds chirp, the, the sunsets are a little more vibrant. There's just all that joy of the Lord that comes in, and it's an amazing thing. And then you walk forward, and there's no water. And then you walk forward some more, and there's no food. And as God provides the one, he provides the other. Then you walk forward, and funny enough, there's no water again. That's, I think, the hardest challenge in the Christian life is encountering the same things over and over again that we've navigated before. Every time I've lost a good friendship, I always thank God that I've been through that, I've learned from it, and it'll never happen again. Somebody's sick and twisted back there. Like, I don't know who that was, but uh, I'm just kidding. Um, but we go through the same challenges again, and sometimes it's even harder, isn't it? The first time we run out of money and God delivers us, um, it's pretty cool. And then when we run out of money again, it gets a little bit harder, right? When we run out of money the third time or the fourth time to where you're hiding it more and more, you can't tell people, you're ashamed more and more, it gets a little harder to believe. Our prayer is a little more desperate. Will God really somehow deliver us? Or even if we have to walk through the fire, will he, will he somehow guard us so that we can survive whatever this trial is going to be? And so they go without water again. And it's a crazy deal. Every time they, they reach a set of circumstances that are a barrier for this community of faith. God somehow provides, and in the first couple instances, he does it miraculously. So through faith, there's this miraculous provision. They're able to hurdle the challenge or the difficulty, and then they're able to kind of move forward as a community. There's a formula there. Um, a barrier you can't overcome God miraculously intervening, 
uh, and then you move forward. When we get to this chapter, though, chapter 18, it's a lot less sexy of a challenge. It's, it's more mundane. And what we see is um, Moses getting a visit from his father-in-law, Jethro. So I'll just kind of walk you through it so we don't have to read the whole chapter. But uh, Jethro brings Moses' wife and kids out into the desert for a visit. Uh, they come, Moses uh, is blessed by his father-in-law, spends time with him, tells him all that God has done. And in verse 9, Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel and rescuing, uh, rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. And he says, praise be to the Lord who rescued you. And now I know that the Lord is greater than all the other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. So then they sacrificed to God. um, And the next day, verse 13, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. Now we were told there were 600,000 men that fled Egypt, not including women and children. This is an incredibly large community that's maneuvering out in the desert. And the next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for, for those people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. So if you can picture the scene, they're, they're crowding in on him. And I don't know if it was chaotic. I don't know if they had, like, take a number um, or, or how it went down. But one after the other, he would hear a disagreement or some kind of an issue that needed resolution by somebody in authority. This is a community that had been slaves. This is a community that had no civ- uh, civil service departments. They hadn't even received the Mosaic law yet. So, so there's a whole lot that, that's going on with regard to what is an offense, what are the penalties for different offenses between people or mistakes or, or whatever. I mean, how do you really judge between this? It's incredibly difficult. So they're coming to Moses, who's the recognized authority, uh, the person of God, the prophet of God, the leader of God, and he's going to render decisions. And so he does this. And he does it all day um, from morning till evening. And when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning all the way until evening? And Moses answers him, because the, the people come to me to seek God's will. And whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. You can just hear it with them, like, somehow we've got to fix these things, and somehow we've got to stay together as a community. Somehow this has to operate. And so they come, and every day there's more people. So they come to me, and, and I, I give them my, my, my resolutions. I give them my judgments. I give them what I know from the Lord. This is, this is what's happening. You can just sense this this urgency that Moses must have. Like, this is what it means to be me. This is what it means to lead these people. Uh, Just like he complained when they were whining about the food and he goes to God and he's like, God, this is too much for me. These people, they're just wearing me out with their complaints. And you can almost feel some of that exasperation as he's telling Jethro, like, who else is gonna do this? I mean, look at all these people. 
Look at how many needs there are. You stood there. It was dusty. It was hot. It was all day. If I don't keep doing this, it's just going to grow and grow and grow. And then there's going to be conflict and fights. Someone's going to murder someone. Someone's going to seek revenge. So they come and I do this. This is what, this is what it is. And Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, replies, what you are doing is not good. I love that. Um, you know, when you get to the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they always say things like that, but they always preface it with, thus saith the Lord, what you're doing is not good, right? Jethro does it on the power of father-in-law-ness. No preface needed, just what you're doing is not good. Um, you and these people, this is verse 17, who come to you, will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice. May God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to them. Of course, that's your role. Teach them the decrees and the laws and show them the way to live and the duties that they are to perform. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, over hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. And if you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. And Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and he made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. And when Moses sent his father-in-law on his way and Jethro returned to his own country. So this is the interesting thing. The first couple challenges with food and water, etc., were external circumstantial barriers to the health and the well-being of this community. This particular one that we find in Exodus 18 is a capacity issue. It's an internal capacity issue with leadership that presents a challenge to the health and well-being of the community. Do you see that? Does that make sense? So the people don't feel it first. It begins with the leader who feels it first. But the effects aren't going to just be on the leader who's going to buckle under the pressure. The effects are going to ultimately uh, ripple out and, and cause problems with the whole community because instead of giving, getting the care and the treatment um, that they need as quick as they need it, as fast as they need it, where, where someone's actually able with the energy to hear all of what's going on in their situation, they're going to get kind of the leftovers of somebody who's burned out. So it's felt by Moses first, but the whole community is dealing with the challenge of Moses' capacity. And if he doesn't create structures or systems that allow for the burden to be carried, they're all going to suffer. Does that make sense? It's an interesting challenge. It's different. It's totally different than the other ones. Um, it's an interesting one. I... I've been sick with a chest cold for like a week and a half. 
And so on Wednesday, I was telling Pete, like, hey, I, my voice is cracking. I can't talk. Like, you're on deck. And Pete's like, my wife's sick. I'm like, well, then Amy Schultz is on deck. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but it, it's funny. So at an energy level, I wasn't jumping up and down excited to preach this morning, right? Um, which, which is not that big of a deal. If you think it's, a bit, it's not that big of a deal. Like, do you jump up and down every day when you go to work? It's, it's like, pastor doesn't want to preach? Like, what's wrong? Does he still believe in God? Like, it's um, not that big of a deal. Uh, but I really felt like maybe, maybe this was like a message that I needed to be in tune with. Um, this past year, I've been wrestling with my limitations more than I've ever wrestled with in my life. And so I think it's, it's, a, it's something that's hitting a little bit close to home. I just got back from a trip to Thailand, organization that I'm on the board of directors with, and some Kiln students went, uh, a few couples from Antioch went, and it's really learning about exploitation in Southeast Asia and, and really how culture, economics, religion, whole lot of different things, um, the tourism consumer side of it that plays into really um, taking advantage of young girls and then really looking at what education and prevention is that would try and help um, fight against this. And so we went on this trip. It was interesting. Uh, I want to describe this trip for you. Uh, we get on, so the week before, I have a bad ankle. Um, so the it's, that's a long story, but, but what you do in your teens and 20s all of a sudden shows up in a different way in your 40s is what I'm learning. Um, so I have a bad ankle locked up on me the week after Christmas. And I was like, oh no, I got to go to Thailand. Like I can't even walk. So I kept going to my physical therapist. I was going over to his house. He goes to church here. He's kind of nice. Um, and he's trying to help me out. Thought, thought he had me patched back up so that I could actually walk. But then we're going through all these airports, and it locked up on me again. So I'm, I can't, I mean, long airports. You know, you're catching a bunch of different connections to go to Asia. So by the second airport, I'm like, I can't walk anymore, and this is getting worse. So I thought I was going to ride on one of those carts, which is not that bad. Um, it sounded kind of cool after traveling for a bit, riding on the carts, little beep, 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 and they're running people over. Well, in Taipei and in Bangkok, they don't let you ride on the carts. If you can't walk, you get a wheelchair. And so I'm being wheelchaired around multiple airports um, and feeling really, really weak and silly. Um, and uh, Jacob Bradomsky and my wife taking pictures of me weren't helping. Um, and, uh, and so I'm just kind of like sucking it up, sucking it up. Well, on the plane from Vancouver to Taipei, 12 hours, we get on there and Tamara and I, Tamara got to go with me this time. First, really the first trip like this, she's gotten to go on with me. It was really cool. Um, unless you're my parents who watch the kids, they might've thought it was less cool. Um, but so we're sitting there and there's a four-year-old girl sitting right in the chair in front of me with this cough that could wake the dead. Um, coughing about 10 times a minute, not covering her mouth. 
And Tamara looks at me and she goes, you think we're going to get sick? And in my mind, I'm like, well, of course we are. But I said to her, no, we're not going to get sick because you lie to your spouse a lot um, <laughs> when, when you think it's in love. Um, so sure enough, I got, I got, I got the sick. Uh, I've had it now for a week and a half. So we get to Bangkok and I can't walk. And so there's this group of 16 people and they're trying to arrange for transport for me from place to place and motorcycles because I literally can't walk. Um, I'm feeling like an idiot. And then I get food poisoning, spend a whole night um, with, with what you do with food poisoning. And then, and then I get this chest cold, which lasts the rest of the trip. Um, and then I come home and I'm combination of chest cold, wiped out, and jet lag. And I mean, I just, it was, it was the worst international travel showing that anybody has ever had. Um, and I, I came to the conclusion, I already thought I was better uh, with humility than anyone I know. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I came to the conclusion that God wanted me to be there in weakness to maybe learn some, some humility. Um, and it was, the whole thing was really hard. Um, it's hard not being able to do things in strength. It's hard to be a leader on something um, and to not even be able to walk and to have that be a limiting factor. It's hard to be presented with those, those barriers. Um, and so I think this message has been speaking to me um, a little more than it might have otherwise. So I'm going to just take the time remaining. I want to talk to some different groups, age groups here in the church, and just share, share some thoughts um, with the time I've got left. And here's the thing. I, I, I want to talk to you 20-somethings first. Um, I wasted a lot of my energy in my late teens and early 20s. And I don't have that energy anymore. I sit around wishing that I still had the energy I had when I was 20 um, or the time, the discretionary time that I had when I was 20. And um, what it does, it makes me go back in my mind and go, you know, there's about five years there that I could have gotten a lot done. And I really wish I had those years back. Um, these books that I want to read or I wish I knew what was in them, but I don't have the, the time or the energy to get to them now, I wish I'd used my time better uh, in my late teens and early 20s. And so if you're in your 20s, if you're still single, um, this is what I would say to you. Don't wait for someone to give you permission to change the world. Change it now. Um, you have a big God and that's all you need. Um, be audacious, dream big dreams, and run hard after it. You're never going to have the opportunity like you do now. Um, there's, a, there's a lot that looks similar between audacity and arrogance, but they're not the same thing. Be audacious. When I was in seminary, there was a guy by the name of Wally Norling who was in his late 70s. He was an adjunct that was teaching leadership. That's all he wanted to do is come in and teach a leadership class. It's my first semester there. Um, Wally Norling had been the head of the EV Free denomination for a long time. He was the one that uh, hired Chuck Swindoll into E Free Florida way back in the 70s. Um, and this guy was there, and all the, 
the students wanted to be in this leadership class. Most of them were uh, in their final year. They were MDiv students. I was a philosophy student in my first year, but I really liked leadership stuff. I was a newer believer, and I just really wanted to learn that. And after a couple months, Wally Norling asked me to start going to dinner with him. And so it was a night class, but we'd meet at this really nasty diner, um, Coco's, if you're from south, uh, from Orange County or whatever. So we'd meet at Coco's at 6, and we would do that every single week. And there didn't really seem to be much reason for it. And so after a number of weeks, I asked him, I said, uh, Professor Norling, I don't get it. Um, there's a lot of seniors in this class I'm, I'm just uh, kind of in my first semester, and I'm really rough around the edges. Um, I don't understand why, why you're taking this interest in me. And he looked at me, and he says, yeah, I've been in ministry a long time, Ken. And he goes, there's one thing I've learned. And I said, well, what's that? He says, I'd rather break a stallion than go to mule. Um, if you're in your 20s, you're going to have a hard time finding people that are going to believe in you. Don't wait for that. Don't be foolish. Don't do stupid stuff, right? But if there's something that's catching your eye that you dream about doing, God can do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine. And God will believe in you even when other people won't. And if you can't find somebody to encourage you or to light your fire, come talk to me. I'll take you to a nasty diner at six o'clock, and I'd love to do that for you. Um, Make the most of this time. Don't live with regrets. Use the time and the energy that God's given you. Um, To those of you that are empty nesters, enjoy the outdoors. Enjoy camping, enjoy hiking. It's wonderful. Um, But there are a lot of people in this church that are drowning. There are a lot of people that have kids and just barely make it through the day. Um, And they would love a Jethro in their life. You're not going to leave a mark on that mountain when you're dead. No tree will miss you when you're gone. And so as, as great as it is to have the retirement lifestyle, there are people here that would be shaped by you, that would gladly be marked by you. Lean into that. Find them. Ask if you can pray for them. Learn from Jethro. He celebrated Moses first. In other words, he affirmed him before he gave him advice. Don't just walk in and tell people how to do things. Don't critique people who are so tired that all they need to know is that somebody's proud of them that somebody's saying, keep on, that you can do it. Don't miss that opportunity to just stand alongside. Celebrate them. And be there when they need to ask how you did it. Uh, Or when you can offer a little word or or, or a connection. You know, if you went and talked to so-and-so, I bet they'd be able to help you out with some of that financial planning. Um, Go talk to this lawyer. It sounds like you really have some issues and they might be able to shed some light on it. But be a Jethro. The community suffers if you don't provide that wisdom and that advice. If people are languishing under loads that are too heavy to carry, either their families or their small groups, their circle of friends or this church is suffering 
And if your insight, your experience, your maturity can rearrange that a little bit better, that's ministry. That's ministry. Leave a mark on somebody. If you're in that situation where you're drowning, seek somebody out. Um, Look around you. If you're a married couple, find a married couple in the church that you look at and say, we want to be like them someday, and just get to know them. You might not even have any problems that you can articulate, but just say, we want to spend time with you to just learn about your marriage and how you handle difficulties, how you talk to each other. Um, Find parents, and you look at their kids, and you just go, they're not perfect, but they must be doing some things right. We want to learn from that. Spend time with them. Ask if you can get involved in their life. Ask if you can follow them. Um, Chase it down. Seek out that wisdom. Don't just think that this is my problem. I have to suffer under it somehow, some way. Can't you see these people? They show up every morning. They stay till night. I have to do this because I'm the man. Um, We all have limits. We all have limits. To all of us, church was meant to be a community endeavor. Romans chapter 12 simply says this, just as each of you has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. And if a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. There's a woman in this church that goes and cleans the houses of moms. It's unbelievable to me. And she's a saint. To me, there's more righteousness in that woman than a thousand people that don't cuss or watch R-rated movies. Righteousness comes in laying our lives down for each other and building the kind of community that God wants us to be and using our gifts not to serve ourselves but to serve others. Um, There are women who pray. It's unbelievable. Um, If you're in a helps or service industry, I, I went to a chiropractor this week and I watched it every 15 minutes, the turnover. And everyone walks in, and you know, when you, when you walk into a, a doctor, you just tell all your problems and all your ailments, and you think they're going to just fix you, and, and that they really exist to serve only you. And, and I was watching, I'm like, people don't realize that 15 minutes later, it's the same thing all over again, right? And I'm like, whoever takes care of those people, whoever, like, focuses on them, asks how they're doing, teachers, Every day giving it out. And then after school realizing that half these kids need to be parented and mentored and more and more. And then parent meetings, you realize, man, some of these marriages, I find like I'm actually trying to speak into that somehow. Counselors dealing with all of uh, the junk that comes in a messy life and taking it in because people need to be heard and taking it in, taking it in, taking it in. Pastors, um, it, it's the same thing. 
Um, I've got 500 people that would really like to go to coffee so that they could talk to me about what's burning on them. And guess what? I want to do that. I really do. But lately I find that I need a Jethro that'll come along and say, um, Ken, how are you doing? How are you not doing? And I'll shoulder that with you a little bit. Because I buckle under some of it all. I think we all do. And so somehow, some way, this is a body with, with many members. And the health of this body is dependent on how each of us steward our gifts. My well-being is connected to you. And your well-being is connected to me. We belong to each other. And there's an opportunity to say that some of the challenges in our life aren't circumstantial and external, but they're internal capacity issues. And as we mature and grow and gain the wisdom of those who have gone before us, we as a community are able to raise up into that and to do way more for each other, for this city, for the world, than ever, uh, than ever we would have thought would have been possible. I pray for that. I've always prayed for that. Those of you that have been here since the beginning know that I've always prayed God would use Antioch to change the world. My prayers change, though. I pray that Antioch would change the world, but I realize now that the next wave of, of, of wonderful, amazing things is going to come on the energy of people other than me. And so my prayer, my dreams for my life are tied up with you. Um, so let's commit those to God together. I'm going to pray. We've got the choir and the band. They're going to do the offering up front. By the way, just because I feel like I just say whatever I want right now, if you're a visitor, you don't need to give to this church. If you're a regular attender here, if this is your church, I expect that you give to this church. And I expect that you give generously to this church. Ministry takes money. And how we steward our gifts together in this church affects how we're able to do ministry and how we're able to impact this community. And we need to talk about it matter-of-factly. So we're going to take the offering here in a bit. It's part of how we sacrifice back and offer up to God our resources that he might be able to multiply those in amazing ways. It's an opportunity to worship is what tithing and giving gifts and sacrifices is all about. Um, so they're going to come in just a minute. I'm going to pray for us. Father, I know there are people here right now who you're speaking to. Um, I know there are people here that you might be speaking to that you've been speaking to for quite a while. I pray this would be a catalytic moment that people would be able to trust you to do what you want them to do. That we would lay down our pride. We'd lay down our illusions of strength. If someone needs to seek someone out, I pray they would. If someone needs to quit a job because you want them to, I pray they would. If someone needs to take a big risk because you want them to, 
And I pray they would. If someone's about to make a mistake because they're going to do something because they're tired and it's not what you want them to do, I pray you would check them. Father, for all of us who have been habituated to be selfish, help us open up our hands. Give us a joy and an excitement to reach out, to engage others, to give and to receive, to be community, to be the church. In this place, we pray, amen.